Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. In today's episode, I interview Brett Grease. Brett talks about how he rose through the ranks at CSG International to eventually become president and CEO. We discuss the importance of mentorship, how he interacted with his board to optimize their effectiveness, and his approach to investing in leadership so the 5,000 people in 26 countries at the company were led by highly competent people. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by Inspire Software. At Inspire, they're committed to helping you achieve superior business results by improving performance, retention, and engagement. Learn more at inspiresoftware.com. Brett, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you, Don. I'm honored to be here. Let's start off with your background. In what position did you start at CSG way back in 1996? Yeah, it, I started as a project manager. I came on board there and I was a project manager to help with some data conversions for some large enterprise systems. And you know, I don't want to go into first came the sun and the dinosaurs, but it was really at some of the earlier days in the history of the company. And what were your aspirations when you started with the company? Uh, that that's a big word. I'm not even sure I utilized or contemplated words like aspiration at that time. It was more of how am I going to pay the bills and put food on the table for my family. As far as aspirations go, I had just come out of the Air Force and completed my graduate degree in business. And I did know that I wanted to aspire to something more in the world of business over time. At CSG, I honestly just candidly went into it with the perspective that I was going to be there for two years. I was going to build my resume. I was going to gain the knowledge to help my, my, myself, pretty self-focused at that point in time. And then I was going to move on. That was really the extent of an aspiration and it didn't play out that way. Yeah. Two years became a quarter century. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's always different when you, when you frame it in that fashion, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And so what was the path? You started out as a project manager and you ended up as the CEO what, how did you progress during that time? Amazingly, I was even dumber then than I am now. And a couple of weeks in, in that project management, and it was, like I said, an enterprise system. So major complex building infrastructure that was being built. And my manager, my boss at the time, about three weeks into the program, I walked into his office and said, you know, I can't go any further. This project is as far as it can go. The data has been moved across your application. You're trying to build doesn't work. And so now I've probably got 20 hours a week of work because your product doesn't work. So we should either part company now, or you should find me more work to do. And that's why I say it was very dumb because healthcare, paying for my family, all these things, and I'm just risking it saying, maybe we should part company. I shouldn't have had that much confidence at that point in time. But thankfully, this gentleman who was also a good friend and, and mentor said, well, I've got this other team over here that hasn't had a manager in a while, we've been looking, how about you step in interim and do that? And I did and studied my tail off to learn what their technology was and how they were doing it. And that was the first time in my career where it really helped me to contemplate the fact that if you've got the capacity and you do well, they'll give you more to do. And what ended up happening is three months later, they asked me to take over leading another team uh, and about eight months later, they asked me to take on another team and it just kept evolving over time. And it got to a point where I was overseeing the operations. And then there was a point while I was there where they asked me if I could take over the sales organization. And so it just built along those lines. And 
you know, you build a lot of relationships and you build a lot of understanding of the organization and the customers and those things through that process. It was very organic, uh, but I had great leaders that helped me to learn as I went through it. When you were moved from that project manager position to the, the interim manager position, was that the first time you were a people leader or had you been managing people I had, in the Air Force or as a project manager? Yeah, I had been a people leader in the Air Force, but it was only a couple of people at the time. But I would tell you, Don, it's something that I take away with great pride is in that entire 25 years there and in the time before. Never in my career have I ever asked for a promotion. Never in my career have I ever asked for a title. And never in my career have I ever asked for an office space or a pay rate. I just went to work. And the interim manager title was their title. It was irrelevant to me as I was doing it and stuff. It was always just wanting to do the work and understand the people and the, and the customers and what we were trying to accomplish was the focus. And so that mindset of you know, never asking and just showing up. Do you think that that's unique to you, that it that it worked for you? Or would you recommend that other people adopt that as well? Because I've gotten to know you now over the last couple of years, and you are very, I would say, in my opinion, no nonsense. You're going to show up. You're always going to bring your best to work. But that's not necessarily everybody. Does that, that make sense to you? It does, but I also think I'm about the most average person on the planet that it's not unique to me. There are a lot of people that do it. I think that maybe something that's unique to me is my upbringing and my parents that really prided that those factors. And they really pushed down things like legacy, income, titles, this kind of thing. Be a good person as you go through it. And so those are things that maybe make it a little bit different is the fact that not only do I not want those things, I want to push them down, all the show and tell garbage, because I just don't think that's the stuff that changes the world and makes the, the world a better place. So you've had a number of these promotions, you know, pretty early on in your career. When did you think that becoming CEO was possible? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Also, I probably thought it. The first time I learned about the role of what is a CEO, which would have probably been in my undergraduate or graduate study, but it never became more serious until I was probably the chief operating officer of the company and my, my manager leader at the time started actually talking about references like that, you know, going to that. And something that I, I shared prior to being the CEO, while I was the CEO there, and since I've been the CEO there, and I interact with a lot of CEOs daily now, is I just have a core belief that we as a humanity have lionized CEOs inappropriately. If you go back prior to, like, I, I, I read this once and I don't have the specific reference, but it's something like prior to 1960, there was never a CEO on the cover of a magazine. No CEOs wrote books. They were people that were filling a role in a company to do more. And then all of a sudden, these big names came along and we got really excited by, you know, the Jack Welches of the world, the Steve Jobs of the world and these things. And we started to lionize them and they started to make these phenomenal amounts of money. And then all of a sudden we woke up and started questioning, why is the CEO making a hundred times what the average employee is? Well, it's because we put that on them. And then what happens is there's this, this averaging effect where... They're looking at the data for all of these CEOs and these 10 are up here. So the next 10 down think, well, I should be there too. 
and it just starts to go there along those lines. So I think that it did get a little bit out of hand, is a little bit out of hand, but that's not taking away from anything that a lot of leaders are doing on this planet. But I, I think that it's gotten to a point where, you know, people are reconciling now as a humanity, what's the right thing for people filling that role and the re level of responsibility they have. I wonder what role have mentors played in your development? And did you seek out formal mentorship? Or did, was it normally informal mentorship? When I was young, probably eight years old, my father was trying to teach me how to play chess. And he introduced me to a gentleman, an old World War II colonel in my hometown who taught me chess. And I would tell you that I believe that that was probably my first mentor and learning as we went through it. By the time I was 23 or 24 and in the Air Force, I formalized it more and have it formalized to this day where I always wanted to have two mentors, one inside my organization and above me in the organization, but not in my chain of command. And then also one outside the organization. And I was always trying to find or get introduced to by other friends, colleagues, mentors, anyone I came into interaction with is the brightest, smartest people that I could come across. And the reason why it was so important is because to hear their different perspective, you know, there's a lot of science out there now about bias and the number of biases we can have, the overt ones, the covert ones, all this kind of stuff that we know about, don't know about. And by having that mentor, what it really did was challenge my own biases. So I would set up lunches. Can I get together once a month or once every couple of months to buy you lunch? and just share the challenges that I'm dealing with. And then they were very open. Once they realized that you didn't want, you know, I'm not trying to get you to give me, donate money to a cause. I'm not trying to get you to get me a job. I just want to talk to you. And they, I found that they were very open about the fact of sharing, you know, have you looked at it in this way? Have you looked at it in that way? And sometimes what happened is I was looking at it completely wrong or the person that I worked for was looking at it in ways that maybe could have been viewed differently. Later, I have a friend, colleague, she was never a formal mentor, but I would say I would have loved to have had her as a formal mentor, a, a lady named Ann Chow, who is a CEO of AT&T's business, one of their business units. And what she taught, as we were talking one time, is that you really need three things in your career. You need to have a coach, you need to have a mentor, and you need to have advocates. And your coach is usually your boss. So that person is telling you, here's the play we're running, and I want this done. That's, that's it. You know, you're going towards key performance indicators. You're going towards measures and you're winning or losing together as you go through that. Your, your mentor is somebody that you can share your heart and soul with. And here's what I'm thinking. And you can be completely wrong. And you're not going to get a write-up in your review because you're completely wrong. You're going to actually learn and have a dialogue and a discussion as you go through it. And even if you have that right, you have your coach right and you're doing well and working, and you have your mentor right. But if you're an absolute jerk, or you're doing things inappropriately in a fashion, then what's going to happen is when everybody leaves that team or everybody leaves that meeting, they're going to speak poorly of you and you're not going to do well at the next table or you're not even going to get invited to it, which is why you need advocates. And advocates are really people that speak well on your behalf is all it is. And so I, I found it to be important on all of those fronts is to have the coach that you could respect and trust and they were treating you fairly and rightly and all that, having mentors and then also having advocates, working as advocates. I've been very blessed with people saying incredibly nice things and candid things along that line, but it's a lot of that's luck and you just do your best in, in the discussions and the dialogues. Who are your mentors now? Uh, actually, I was just thinking about that, Don, before we even had this dialogue, 
is my mentors have changed now as far as who they are. They're more in roles later in their lives where uh, mentorship around philanthropic giving and those types of activities. And the, the, the one that when I say I've been thinking about this lately is I believe that I need to find a mentor who's in their early to mid 20s and pushing me because it's so easy to fall into the crotchety old man. Beyond the mentorship we were talking about, the other one that I had from a structured is once every other year, I was going to go to a formal structured learning at an institute that I thought was high end that was going to help to push me along those lines. And then my, my strategy beyond the mentor and beyond taking that formal, you know, there's a quote by Willa Keller. She said that there are some things you can learn best in the calm and some that you learn best in the storm. And so in the opposing year, one year I would take formal training and then I would work with my coach or my boss and ask for specifically, where's a storm? Where's a broken project, a broken team, a broken whatever? And I would put myself in a position to go and learn from the storm. And there are things that just, you know, fell apart. There are things that became great as it went through it, but there's not one of them where I didn't learn a lot. That's such great confidence to do that because a lot of people would say, oh, I don't want any part of that. That could, that could be a disaster. That could be a failure. But it seems like you had the confidence to say, yeah, I'll be a part of that. You know, I'm, I'm going to learn at the very least and maybe I can turn it around and, you know, get some results out of it as well. So when I would find projects, teams, or programs that were completely broken, I would try to get whoever was remotely close to it in a room together. And the very first thing I would do is just openly say, this is an absolute mess and I dropped the ball and messed it up. You could physically watch people's shoulders go down because they weren't going to be blamed because they just took the blame for it. And once we got the blame out of the way, it was amazing when we started talking how you could actually progress and get something done. And I can't tell you the number of times six weeks or two months or six months later, someone would come up to me and say, you said you messed that up. You didn't mess that up. I'd say, I know, but we fixed it. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> uh, but it was just getting that off of the table is the having to find blame first and then getting focused on what we're trying to do and move forward. I found it to be very helpful in that initiative. What advice do you have for someone who wants to run a company? Well, you know, after I was running a company, a fairly decent mid-cap company in the public eye, people would ask me six months or a year into it, how do you find being CEO? How is it? What's it like? And I would always tell them that uh, it's way less interesting what the first year of being a CEO is like as it was the six months to a year beforehand. And the reason was because as it started to become more and more of a reality, my wife and family started to talk about it more because under no circumstances do I ever want to prioritize company over my family. And what we started talking about is this isn't really a job. It's a lifestyle. You're going to wake up thinking about it. You're going to go to sleep thinking about it. There's going to be challenges on weekends. There's going to be challenges on nights. And it just becomes who you are. If you love the company and you love the people and you love the solutions, then it didn't miss a beat. And so I guess if I were going to advise anyone that they wanted to is make sure you understand why you want to lead a company is if, if it's for the right reasons, I think that's a really positive thing as you go down that path. If it's just for a title, just for a money, just for a lifestyle, it's going to hurt. It's going to be very painful. And it's not just running a company. 
it's running your family, it's running a, you know, a nonprofit, it's running a private equity firm. When you're the leader, you put that all on you and you're going to own it. And, and it does, it weighs on, if you're, I think if you're doing it with the right reasons, then you feel it in there and it's a, it's a yoke and, and you're making the decision. So I think it's important to think through and understand those aspects and, and then figuring out what the right cause is that you're going to focus your energies on. I don't think there's enough attention really given to how demanding the job is and what sorts of sacrifices that people need to make in their personal lives when they're running a company. I think you had thousands of employees and they're probably were globally dispersed. So that's a, that's a big job. What, what sacrifices did you have to make? And then how did you navigate those sacrifices with your family or negotiate those sacrifices? Yeah. When we, when I retired, left, CSG, we had 5,000 employees in 26 different countries. And so, yeah, it was thousands in a, in a dispersed environment. Um, as far as how I negotiated them uh, with my family or how I balanced it with my family, I would tell you the number one biggest sacrifice is time. It is time. Uh, you know, I've heard Warren Buffett say that is that it's the one, one thing he can't buy uh, is time. So you want to be extremely, extremely cautious and careful with your time. I used to have a note on my monitor for years that always said that I will never prioritize my schedule. I will only schedule my priorities. And so I did. I literally would sit down every Sunday evening and look at my priorities, which were my family, my health, my spirituality, the company I was with, and I would negotiate those. And what's amazing is how you start finding in the week the number of things that got on your calendar that have nothing to do with your priorities. And it got really hard to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, I'm afraid you're not a priority or this project isn't, or I have something that's a greater priority I have to work on at this point in time as it goes through. And I learned that I don't have to explain or make excuses for everything. I can remember calling off a meeting. This is post-CSG, a completely different meeting with a different firm where I said, I'm not going to be able to make that meeting on Thursday afternoon. And they pushed a little bit and then they said, okay, we'll reschedule it for Friday. It was for a swimming lesson for my grandson. It was a priority. I needed to be there. He was scared. And so it really comes down, I believe, to, to, to scheduling your priorities over just prioritizing your schedule uh, yeah. if you go through it. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the board of directors and how you leverage the board of directors to help the organization succeed. You know, I, my understanding is that, and I've worked with the board before as an executive director, but not for an organization as big as yours. And I looked at them as kind of like a Swiss army knife at, at times, like where are their strengths and how can I leverage their strengths? But they're there to provide governance as well. And so I'm just curious how you use the board of directors and how they you would collaborate with them. People bring different skill sets to the to the board as you're going through that. Some are better than others. You know, you got to be cautious all the time to make sure that you don't get the disruptive character in there. So you don't get to hear the diverse opinions and the diverse voices that are in there. I found myself often having to call on the quiet person. What do you think of that, Tommy, Sally, Janet? whoever it is, what do you think of that? Just to pull out their, their views as you're going through it, because a Swiss army knife is of no value if you don't know which tool to use when or how to get the, the most out of it as you're going. So a board is a, again, it's a, it's a, 
a yoke of responsibility that they have to show up prepared, make sure you've read it and understand the activities that are going to be discussed in here. Make sure that you're bringing a collegial but professional self to the table. You're a member of boards and which of the tools on the Swiss Army knife do you represent when you're a board member? The couple I bring into the table is technology is one and then also operational. And now getting more and more just the board governance because, uh, you know, there's organizations out there like the NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors, there's a private board member. And so I've tried to do all the learning I can from that, which has also helped to bring some of that governance and oversight. So I head an audit committee, I head a tech committee, I sit on a uh, payer compensation committee. And so you start to, over time, you just learn more and more about the different things that are there as, as you go through it. One of the things that I've admired about you in the short time that we've known each other is just how much time you dedicate to learning and reading and and just absorbing as much information as possible. How did you develop that over the course of your career? It's with a little bit of pride I share that I graduated in the bottom 25% of my high school class. And I also got asked to leave the University of Nebraska twice. The grades were so bad. And then I joined the Air Force because of a feeling and a cause that I had when I watched an event happening on television. At 10 o'clock one night, at 7 o'clock the next morning, I was standing at the door of the recruiter's office and signed up. And after the first Persian Gulf War, when I came back, a lot of my friends and family would say, wow, the, uh, the Air Force taught you what you wanted to do with your life. And my answer to them was, no, it taught me what I didn't want to do with my life. It was a great cause and being in war and learning all those kinds of things. However, you're risking a lot in that environment. And what I realized is that the people that were making the decisions for me, who were officers and these kinds of things, had an education. Uh, my father always pushed me to get a college education, which is why I believe I landed there. But I didn't have the right focus and I didn't have the right discipline to execute upon it. And so what it led to later is the fact that if I'm ever going to be the person I want to be while I'm on this planet, I've got to be as educated and as smart as I can. And I don't want to be a specialist in one area. I want to learn as much as I can about everything I can, because I think that the pieces all tie together in some way, shape, or form. And that was really a turning point for me in my early 20s. And since then, it is, you know, I, I kind of just want to be a lifelong learner and the rest will play itself out. Are there two or three books that have been highly influential in the way that you view the world and the way you view leadership right now? There are some that I go back to over and over and over again. The Stoics, anything dealing with the Stoics, I read because they work to eliminate a lot of emotion and a lot of ego and get to the point where it was very focused. I still daily read out of that, not to go too far down that path, but also just some, some core management and leadership ones along that. Incentive Management by John Lincoln. It's a hard book to come by. I got it in grad school written like in the 1950s, but when he was in his 90s, and it wasn't about philosophy. It's like, here's what I did. And he had all his, he was one of the early guys with data and metrics from the 40s and the 50s. And you look at it in hindsight and say, wow, this was a thought leader on data science without it. And then nobody really thought about it for another 40 to 50 years. Well, they thought about it, didn't execute on it. So that's another big one. 
and literally hundreds and hundreds of books in my collection that I've been working to get rid of and move things to be more digital and online and that kind of thing as we go. How did you think about investing in leadership so the rest of the organization could have high levels of leadership effectiveness? Oh, absolutely. I can tell you that I don't recall in 25 years there or in my 35 years of work, never has an individual brought a request for more training or development that I've ever said no to. But the other thing that I think was important, and it was one of my mentors that taught me this, is he said that, look, Brett, nobody on the planet cares more about your career than you. So you got to own this. And that was one of the things for me is I have to own that. And I tried to coach that into a lot of the people that I worked with. What we also did, and we were blessed enough to have the resources to be able to do it, we had an independent third-party organizational psychologist, organizational theorist, who would come in and meet with us as a team once a quarter, and each individual on the team got spoken to to answer questions about what they thought the priorities were, what they thought the challenges were, all those things. And I wanted it to be anonymous because, again, our earlier conversation that people will lionize a CEO or can't just be completely candid with their manager, I wanted it to be just anonymous. If I'm screwing up, tell me. If somebody else on the team is screwing up, let's talk about it and get it there. And then we would get together as a team. At first, it was like a six-hour meeting, but later it became a one-hour meeting. Here's what our priorities are. Here's what we're doing well on. Here's what we're doing poorly on. We as a team talked about it. There was individual feedback that this person should get trained in this area because it's going to be important to their skill set going forward. This person is maybe over-indexing to this skill that they've had for whatever period of time. And it was really, truly about that team and trying to build it. This idea of quiet quitting is getting a lot of attention in the media, and I'm sure you've heard the term. And, and, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm annoyed by it because it's not something new. I can remember when I was a student, there were students who quit on teachers and there were athletes who quit on coaches and there were employees who quit on bosses. And, you know, certainly the last 40 years of consciousness, I have seen quiet quitters. And oftentimes leaders are being blamed for this phenomenon. And I think it's unfair, to be honest with you. I don't think that leaders are worse than they were two and a half years ago. I think leadership is harder than it was two and a half years ago. And I wonder, you know, what your perspective on the, the topic of quiet quitting is and what leadership, leadership should do in order to quell it. Well, first of all, I'm not sure that you'll want to quell it as it goes forward. Quiet quitting has been around since humanity has been around, that people just are checking out. Or I think that's the negative way of looking at it, because the positive way of looking at it is some of these employees are taking control of their own lives and saying, look, I need to take care of my mental health. I need to take care of my physical health. I need to take care of my family. So you're going to get what you're paying me for. And this is a job. This isn't a lifestyle at this level as we go forward. I do agree that leadership is more challenging now because of that information cycle and because of the expectations that are put on people. And they expect, you know, if, you, if you're not one of these big fang companies that are growing at 25%, you must be a loser. And so people set these expectations that are unrealistic and they're not normal and they're not natural as you go through things. It's not normal to win every day. It, that's not a normal. 
And so I think that the expectations are higher. And I think that Jim Collins, who's a, a, a real hand at leadership and has taught all over the world, but what, one of the things that he said is that the definition of leadership is getting people to want to do what must be done. So getting people to want to do what must be done. It's not bonuses. That's coercion. That's not leadership. That's coercion. If you do this, I'll give you this. The same thing with the titles and the pay. That's coercion. That's not leadership. Leadership is getting people to want to do what must be done. And so if the leaders can kind of step away from the news cycle of the moment and figure out the goals and objectives and the strategies of their organizations and get people's hearts and minds bought into that, uh, I can remember many of an employee that left at five o'clock every day that was incredibly invaluable to us because while they were there, they were focusing and doing it. And, you know, you take care of them while they were doing these other things. You need to take care. You want, I had a gentleman that was in his 60s that told me he wanted to golf in the summertime. And he's like, I'll work all winter, however much you want as you go. I was like, great, we'll prioritize together because your skills and your knowledge that you're bringing to the table. I need it. I want it. I'll do whatever I can. And so I think that from a leadership perspective, it's getting people to want to do what the organization knows must be done and then doing it in a healthy fashion so that it's sustainable and you can grow and evolve and compete and win every day. When you were CEO, what were the top metrics that you tracked on a regular basis? I'm a little bit of a data geek. And so there were a lot of them. We actually had the, the key performance indicators or the scorecards that we managed. But of course, as a fiduciary company, I always used to say, guys, we're not a not-for-profit. We're here to make money. So revenue and EBITDA earnings, as you go through their revenue and profit, was incredibly important. I said, there are, there are greater missions than we were on. Unicef's trying to solve world hunger. That's a lot greater than what we're trying. We're making money as we went through it, but that was a key and to know what the mission was and what we were going after on that. We also had key metrics around our employee satisfaction and our customers. And we're constantly trying to do different kind of surveying and learning to drive those things up because you know it's kind of like the, the three-legged stool. You've got to take care of your employees You've got to take care of your customers and you've got to take care of your shareholders. And it's a dynamic world that's changing all the time. So they won't be perfectly balanced all the time. Sometimes you're going to have to take it on the chin for your shareholders in whatever method to get money where it needs to be. Sometimes you're going to have to take it on the chin for your customers and sometimes for your employees. But if any one of them is getting the short end of the stick consistently, it's a bad day. Because if all your employees are not quite quitting, they're actually quitting, you think it's hard running a company, wait till you're doing it alone. It's even more difficult, you know, as you're going through that. But if you're frustrating your customers and they go away, they're the ones that write all your checks. You got to take care of that. And if you upset the owners to actually expect a return, that's important too. So the metrics were primarily around those three areas, the, the customers, the employees, and the shareholders. Are we taking care of them? Now, the fourth one that we added into that as we went through it, and a former CFO that I worked with who's an incredible friend and human, is we were trying to get that broader balance done. And what we said is if we get those three right, then we'll be able to add a fourth leg, which is our communities. Then we'll be able to give back. We'll give back time from our employees. We'll give back money from our folks as we go through it. And we just believe that that was important, too, in the places that we work. Is there a failure you can talk about and what you learned from it? I could actually bring out notebooks of failures. I feel like it's almost every day in my procedural nature and trying to do a debrief after they happen to, to learn from them as we go through. I'd say a failure that I would share 
that came more not from my professional life that led to my professional life is one out of my personal life. And that was that Persian Gulf War combat, 21 years old, going through it. Uh, you're truly in a survival mode, trying to figure things out and not what you expected to be in. And then all of a sudden you get home and you've got a plaque on the wall that says you helped to liberate a country at the age of 21. And wow, that's kind of a big deal. And you feel like uh, read from that 70s show. Now I'm the old guy, blah, blah, blah. But about 10 years after that happened, so it was probably 2001, 2002, I was in my backyard with my mother having a cocktail one summer evening. And I told her, I said, mom, it's been weighing on me that I went through that entire process and I never contemplated, acknowledged, or recognized what you must have been going through in your heart as a mother. And 10 to 12 years later, almost instantly, tears came to her eyes. She hugged me and we had this conversation afterwards about it. So the failure, I would tell you, Don, is that as a son, I failed to acknowledge someone else's feelings or what they were going through in an experience. That migrated into my professional life, where sitting at a boardroom table, sitting anywhere, I am mentally sitting there wondering, I wonder what that person is feeling about this topic. I wonder what that person is thinking about this topic. And then afterwards, trying to get that all on the table in the moment instead of waiting years afterwards. And so as much as we can focus on a number or a key performance indicator, it's usually those feelings and those thoughts that are inside that challenge a team to be healthy and dynamic moving forward. So you have some experience in the private equity space. How does private equity think about investing in leadership or making investments and thinking about quality of leadership when they are making those investments. You know, you know, private equity is managing money on others' behalf to get a return. What I find is the fact that they're more of a pure capitalistic state looking for a return. And what I have been pleasantly surprised by by private equity is the fact that the firms that I've worked with is they care about ESG, they care about leadership, they care about diversity because they see the value that it brings to the table and it brings value to the organization. So when they're looking at doing staffing decisions, hiring decisions, all that type of thing, they're probably less patient of a lack of any of those important traits and things as they go through than even in the public markets were, and they move quicker, but they highly value leadership and people that can actually say what they do and then do what they say. They're not into storytellers. Storytellers might work in some other markets that someday this will be really profitable. I have not found that to be the case in, in, in the private equity firms that I've worked with. Early on in the conversation, you said that you didn't get into being a leader or a CEO for legacy, but now you're a little bit older. And I wonder if you think about what you want your legacy to be, uh, you, know, if, you know, and you're still a young guy. So what, what's interesting to me is, I see you have probably decades left to to work or to influence and establish that le legacy. So I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are on that. You know, when I became the CEO of the publicly traded firm, uh, they've got people in all sorts of roles around that communications, investor relations, all these types of things that are out there. 
And the person asked me in my office, they said, well, what do you want your legacy to be? And that was the first time the concept probably ever came to my mind, even. And my quick response at the time, not thoughtful, was I want my legacy to be I don't have a leg. Just I'm irrelevant in the game. I want to continue to learn and progress through it. As I thought through it more and think through it, I, I think that if there was any legacy, I would hope that it is that everything I touched, I made a little bit better. And that's it. So that my my kids, my grandkids, the people I work with see that it's not about the rocket going to the moon, as important as that is. I'm not trying to diminish it, but it's the grind. It's the process every day. Taking the lesson when I'm in my 30s from my mom and saying, you can be better. You can be a better person because of this. And so hopefully it's just that whatever I've touched it, I helped to make it a little bit better, including myself right up until the end that I'm continually trying to be a better version of whatever it is. Brad, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Next week, I will be talking to hip hop artist Dessa. In addition to being an incredibly accomplished musician, Dessa is a poet and the host of the podcast, Deeply Human. We talk about her approach to leadership in the various aspects of her career and her daring collaboration with the Minnesota Orchestra. Thank you again to Inspire Software for sponsoring this episode. Thanks also to Richard Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com.